Hello, welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. Enthusiastic intro for you. It's part three of the Tom Petty deep dive. This means a lot to me because it's Paul Zollo, one of the great all-time music journalists and authors. He is the, frankly, he is the shit. He is the the absolute dude. So it was pretty awesome to have him on the show. It was it, we really connected. You'll feel that um, Warren Zanes and I certainly did, which was part two. If you haven't already, check out parts one and two. But um, uh, yeah, Warren and I really, really did connect. But with 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 Paul, it was it was a deeper connection, and um, he really he felt my love for Tom, you know. And I think that will come across in this interview. And uh, th- yeah, it's a beautiful conversation. We go into the emotion more emotional side of things and and i think you're going to get a lot from it this one definitely but if you have been listening to parts one and two thank you thank you for for your support it really does mean a lot and if you are part of the tom petty community um i hope you've got something from it you probably will already know an awful lot um will you have heard will you have heard of a freakish british guy asking questions before about Tom Petty. Who knows? Are you, in fact, are you British and you don't give a crap about nationality? Are you American? You think, my God, what's a British guy banging on about Tom Petty for? Who knows? Is he Jeff Lynn? I'm not Jeff Lynn. If I were, I don't know, I'd probably shave those, that fucking facial hair off and get rid of the shades. It's been like 90 years. Um, anyway, didn't mean that, Jeff. I didn't mean that. But yes, enjoy part three. I'm super looking forward to it. I'm going to listen to it back. I never really do that, but I'm going to. And um, yeah, p- please share it. Pass it on. You know, be generous with this one. Be generous with them all, for goodness sake. It, it's it's cool to share. Share and share alike. That's what I say. That's why I'm bringing this deep dive out there. I want to share in the knowledge and the love and the story and the music of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. It is a unique and fantastic story. And if you have been listening to Tom Petty, like uh, Kevin Smith-White, um a lot more than usual, then you're a good person. Kevin is a hero of mine. Uh, I worked with him for many years. Um, He is who I am. If it wasn't for Kevin, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. Um, He taught me how to write and read, read and write and add up. He taught me how to add up and he taught me how to weed gardening. He's He's a gardening man and he taught me all those things. He taught me how to read, to write, to add up, to to weed frankly, I couldn't run all that well before I met Kevin Smith-White. So he taught me how to read, write, add up, weed and run. Kevin, if you're listening, I bequeath you my... Not so hot, pretty ropey. acoustic guitar um anyway um guys um enjoy the show chris difford is a dickhead there is no doubt about that in my mind and maybe one day i'll elaborate on that and if if you want to know more just feel free to to ask me on twitter what that's about uh at limehouse pod on twitter and then on instagram we'll see you there enjoy the show paul zollo is an absolute sweetheart you will be totally in love with him by the end of this podcast. I'll see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye now.
William. How are you? I'm grand. I'm grand. How are you doing? Good. I'm glad we could connect. And right away, I'm happy seeing those albums behind you. That makes me happy. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. All right. Oh, yeah. All right, bro. I've got... Um, I've actually got a tour um, a tour program from the Into the Great Wide Open album, but I couldn't be asked to get that out. That's like super effort. Um, but 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 also it's like um, I think that would just go too far, wouldn't it, Paul? It'd just be too much. I don't know. Is it too much? Can you get too much Tom Petty stuff? Too much ain't enough. <laughs> too, too much and not enough, as Dylan said a few times. Too much and not enough. Right. Yeah. Oh man. But how are you doing, man? How are you doing? How's your morning? So far, so good. It's uh, surprisingly gray out there in, in Los Angeles today, which is always Jeez. unusual. Dude, don't don't you be complaining, seriously, man. I know. I'm I am like this close to having a breakdown with the weather at the moment in 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 England. It's so fucking awful. It's just endless gray cloud, man. Like you can get an entire month in the UK where it's just cloud. I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. It can be an entire month of just. I know. Blank. Yeah. I grew up in Chicago, and though I've been here for Ooh. more than thirty years, it's, this is still exotic to me. That we have so much. <laughs> and my, I talk to my brother all the time and tell him it's beautiful, and he always says, "Fuck you." You know, that's all I ever. Oh man, bloody hell! I'm trying to think of like the downsides of living in California, and I, yeah, I don't know if there are any. I mean, there are obviously, but I mean, oh, I'd love to live there. I've got, I've got a, a songwriting friend over there, Greg, um, Greg Holden, who lives, um, who lives over there, and um, spoke in Los to him last. Yeah, yeah, I spoke to him last week. Uh, he's um, man alive. He's just so good for the podcast. He's an amazing songwriter, and he's got a really cool story about um, Petty. He met him at an awards ceremony, and, and and Tom was like, "Hey man, that's a great song you've got." Uh, right? After he'd performed at the ceremony, it was amazing. But um, dude, let's let's talk book. Um, All right. I, I've audio. I audio booked it because my job is gardening, so I work outside, and um, I've had the pleasure of of. I actually realised I read it when it first came out when I would have been mid twenty probably i'm 39 now so yeah 20s um and i and i and it's so funny that man like it started coming back to me but i'd read it so long ago that it was just fresh as a daisy and man the the, the emotion of the new introduction that you've put in I, I can only imagine that must have taken some effort to to really like put that to paper for the expanded edition you mean yeah yeah, yeah. the new hot since Tom's passing. Yeah, well, thank, thank you for asking about that because that was a lot of pressure. And you, you understand. I don't know if a lot of people understand, but, uh, you know, the, it was the new edition of the book and a lot of his fans who really love him with the devotion knew the first version. So I wanted to give him something extra. But that was really hard because my, you know, it was emotional, you know, like, like all of us, it felt like losing a friend. And I always had the vision that, I always had a very clear vision of doing the book again. There'd be a new edition but mm. never did I consider, but Tom will be gone already. And that's just too dark and sad of a thought to this to this day. So it was tough. I had a hard time doing it. It took me a, a long time to get it to where it is. And even now, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the audible, uh, the, the audio version of it, because I listened to that myself, and I'd never listened to one of my books on audible. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it really uh, points out where, where stuff needs editing. When I would hear the it's spoken, it's like, oh, man, I wish I could do that paragraph over. It's kind of a tough, 
a tough test of writing. But uh, no, yeah. no, not at all. I I loved it. I think there's, oh, it's so not glad. it's not baggy or anything. Like I mean, if I I think even if you're just a neutral, and you just want to learn about someone new in their life. I mean, wow, what what a story! Like that. This is why. I feel comfortable talking about Tom Petty. Like I've spoken with um, Chris, uh, Christopher McKitterick, who's also, um, he's just done a book on Tom and um, Warren Zanes. And, and now you, I, I feel fine doing that because it's the most freaking full story ever. I mean, really? for me anyway, there are more, <clears throat> but when did you first like, I don't know, when did Tom Petty first come to you, like land in your lap musically or otherwise? Well, like a lot of Americans, I heard them on radio and I heard some of these early songs and I, it, I wish it wasn't, I'm sorry, making that noise so much. I, uh, it's very noisy, isn't it? I'm sorry. <laughs> That's uh, all right. doesn't really, we can't really hear it all that much. Oh, good, good. Uh, at first I thought, boy, this guy is really good. But like a lot of people, I thought, sounds a lot like Dylan or the birds. Like right away we were trying to like, he's like this, you know, he's not his own thing. Uh, but as time went on, I mean, he just kept writing amazing songs. Said, wow, this guy's really good. By the time mm -hmm. of Full Moon Fever, which he did with Jeff Lynn, you know, his first solo album, it was like a, a reinvention. And he had connected with this new simplicity in his music and this joy. And that's so unusual. You know, usually people do their great music in the first 10 years or so, and then they, uh, you know, they lessen in some way. They, and the way, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty common. And Tom just got better. And, uh, you know, 40 years of it, he just kept getting better. But... Uh, it was really Full Moon Fever and then Wildflowers, just that bounty of so many songs. I said, this is a songwriter really plugged in. It's remarkable. How does this guy do it? So I was eager to get to talk to him about it. No shit. I mean, like, the other thing is, like, the back catalogue. Because for me, when I grew up, it was um, Into, the, Into the Great Wide Open. Um, my mum got that for me. Uh, or the family on cassette. And, a, and I was just in, you know, as Tom says in the... Um, running down a dream documentary with, in regards to Elvis. He goes like the hook was in really deep for him when he first heard Elvis. But for me, it was, it was petty. And like, but I didn't know until quite a long, you know, until I could explore my own music that there was a whole like, oh, wow, what? He's got like five, six other albums before this one. Oh, OK, this is something. And then you, you go back to the beginning. It's really cool. Where, when... The thing that really, right, the real thing that really got me was where the hell did you start with Tom? Like, how did you think, I mean, where where on earth did you go, right, this is the first, this is the first question for Tom. I mean, I'm guessing you're going to a studio and it's a pretty chilled environment anyway, but there's still a little bit of like, because I know you really, really went to town on your detail um, and the research. What was your first, like, oh, this is what I'm going to ask Tom. Well, before I did the book, I interviewed Tom many times. That's how I gained his trust to be able to do the book. So the first time I interviewed him was uh, was when Wildflowers came out. I got an advance of it. And he was just in a wonderful mood because he was just so overflowing with those songs. And uh, he had known I interviewed uh, Dylan and other people and appreciated my, because uh, I'm a songwriter myself, my uh, focus yeah. on the writing and what it takes to write a great song. Uh, so he was happy to talk about it. He was in a a wonderful mood and then after that i interviewed him several times once even for united airlines had their uh audio in flight <laughs> we've got another cat this is like <laughs> a third this is a third cat in a row in an interview this is great must have been that's good that's funny uh, uh yeah i interviewed him for united airlines or in-flight audio entertainment that you listen to yeah. and uh and uh, so several times so 
by the time I, I wanted to do a book, I suggested it to him and he liked the idea because he already trusted me. So uh, at the time he said, let's, it was when he first started his first website. It was that new, it was like 2004. Oh. So yeah. let's do a little audition for the website. So I came over, he had moved to Malibu recently, he had been living with his first wife in Encino and then uh, at what he called the chicken shack when he got divorced. and. Then in Malibu, where uh, he eventually, you know, Dana moved in with him, his current, his his wife, and uh, and so we did kind of an audition there at the, at the Malibu, and uh, it was great. You know, we always had a great talk because I have so much reverence for him, and right. also he loved that as a as a songwriter myself, I would reverse engineer his songs like we do, you know, find out what what are those chords, because he just had a knack for using simple chords, but in such ingenious ways. Of, how did he do yeah. that? You know, just kind of turn them around, but not using bizarre chords. I mean, he just had a brilliance for that. And I was so in awe of that. And he, you know, songwriters rarely get to really discuss that, you know, the, mm. the mechanics of how you write a great melody or, you know, what it takes to put the whole thing together, not just the words, but the whole package. And so he appreciated that. So uh, when I suggested doing a book, the idea was yeah, a book of conversations on music and art. It wasn't meant to be an autobiography at all, but it became real quickly apparent that all his stories about songs were tied in with his life and his life was all about his music. So it was hard to extricate him. So after a while we said, yeah, we could throw in some, you know, personal stories. So it, it shifted, uh, yeah. but we didn't do the whole book uh, in the order that it ultimately uh, came out. And, you know, I would come in really knowing certain songs. And he said, after one, he goes, you know what, Paul, from now on, let me know what songs you want to talk about in advance. Cause you've done your homework. <laughs> And I haven't, <laughs> and I will. And it's because he was a pro that he did that. Not other people I've worked with would 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 take that time, but he would yeah. come back really knowing the song and knowing like, you know, what amp Mike played out of with all these great details, which led sure. some people to wonder like, how does this guy smoke so much pot in his life? Remember things so clearly. <laughs> <laughs> like, so what was your, um, I mean, what was your in with Tom? I know that you said, you, you know, you've interviewed him previously for, was it, was it, what sort of magazine was that for? Originally, it was for Song Talk. I was the uh, editor uh -huh. of Song Talk, which was the journal of the National Academy of Songwriters. It was on newsprint, okay. like the old Rolling Stone. And yeah. we had a, a lot of space. So I would do these long, in-depth interviews. Yeah. And, uh, and that's where I did Dylan, and he saw that, and, and a lot of people. But after that, I was with Performing Songwriter, and now I'm with the Mo American Songwriter magazine. Right. And, uh, and uh, the, the first one I put in, a lot of my interviews I put in this book, which I just happened to have right there, uh, Songwriters yeah, on Songwriter. I know. I saw that uh, on Amazon. Songwriting. So that's like a mega dense book, man. Like you talk to a lot of different people, right? Yeah, I've been really lucky. It was a great job. They paid me to do it. Just go after great songwriters and uh, songwriters, as I said, really wow. appreciated the opportunity to talk about the craft in a real serious way, you know. And uh, so well, it's yeah, been a I mean, wonderful dude, journey. This is the thing with this show. Like, I every Wednesday I talk to like a young. Uh, up and coming musician and they say to me like this never fucking happens no one gets no one sits down with me to talk to 45 minutes to an hour about my music where i've come from and everything and after a while you know they really they open up to it you know it's not just a a silly fluffy chat you know about getting shit faced or whatever it's it's kind of and i think it's funny that you have to get to the age of like you know 55 or whatever 54 when tom spoke with you that that people start like i mean okay it happened long before that with tom obviously but you know you get to a certain age where now you can take you could be taken seriously as a musician i i don't think that's quite fair but um mm. when when like i don't know this when this 
I, the, the thing is, right, Paul, I'm fucking jealous of you, okay? Let's just put it that way. When you did this, um, I saw this, um, is it Jerry Shandling or Shandling or Larry Shandling, the guy who did um, the, uh, oh, gosh, a, talk, a, a spoof talk show in the 90s. Oh, uh, yeah, Gary um, Shandling. Right. And Tom was on that show, that's right, yeah. Right, and then he went down, went round to his studio and did a chat with him for about 20 minutes, an interview, and it gives you kind of, you can find it on YouTube, and it gives you a rough idea of what Tom was like in a chilled environment, like smoking his weed and talking. <laughs> like, what, like, was it like, for me, was the, like, the vibe between you, how did it start? Did you warm to one another very quickly, going around his house and stuff, or was it a bit cagey to start with that sort of thing it wasn't cagey at all i mean unlike other people he had no guards up he was very open i remember he was wearing his moccasins and this nice sweater and like i said wildflowers just came out and he was really excited about that because he wrote an amazing range of bounty and so so many songs he couldn't put them all on the album a lot of them yeah. went on the next uh, she's the one soundtrack and then on the a lot that never came out till recently on the new wildflowers uh, set he was in a really good mood and I came in with just great love and reverence for what he'd already done. And mm. I said, I got to tell you, this is, I said, I figured it would be good, but I'm sorry. Excuse me. It's all right, it's Elvis. <laughs> it is he Elvis. Wants How did you know? I wasn't supposed to talk about it. <laughs> he lives in LA now, in Pasadena, actually. Oh, really? Okay. No, I, no, I, no. I find that hard to believe, but, you know, fine. We'll I've been told that. that, actually, that he is that he lives often in Pasadena. He, he moves around, though. Well, he of lost... course he fucking does. Yeah. It's like it's like Santa Claus, right, as well. You know, he, I, I don't I don't buy it for a second that he lives in one place all year round. I reckon Santa's around all fucking year planning his route. But anyway. Right, yeah, but what... unlike uh, Santa, Elvis right now is, is slender. He's not heavy. <laughs> what, I, what I've been told. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what, what were we just talking about? We were talking about... Um, How Tom, Tom was the first time. Yeah. Uh, we connected because... Uh, of my love of the craft and I came in knowing, you know, even songs like You Wreck Me, it took him a yeah. year to get it right. It was You Rock Me. And I appreciated the diligence. And, and you know, when I was growing up, I would read Rolling Stone and occasionally they might ask one question about like, you know, how'd you write that one? And that would just be fascinating. Uh, and they don't get asked that much. They get asked about other things, as you know, so they, they love that. And I go in with just a million questions about every aspect, but the, it's an A minor. What do you, you know, like, yeah. And there are a lot of songwriters that don't want to talk about those things. It's like, hey, I don't think you should look at it that closely. You could destroy it. And I understand that some people don't want to. Tom mm. didn't mind that. He liked talking about it. You know, he liked to, yeah, you notice it went to that chord and his, his, uh, he had a lot of wisdom about songwriting. So we I, had a connection, but excuse me. But, uh, no, sorry. After the first interview, I went back to my office and we had such a good connection I was really happy, but I realized I left out about four of the fundamental questions I really wanted to ask. And I'd never done this before, but I called his his uh, manager, Mary Clouser, a wonderful person. Uh, I said, I, I'm sorry to ask this, but it was really wonderful. But is there any chance we could do one more quick talk? Because I missed some questions. <laughs> and she's cool. She goes, I'll ask him. You know, she was always that way. So I'll, she'd get you a real answer. And she called back within five minutes and said, yeah, he said, sure, come on over. That was the next day. So I drove out to Encino again from Hollywood. And this time I brought a joint just in case, because I know the guy has some fondness for marijuana. And we were supposed to just have a few questions. We talked for another hour, you know, he was in a great mood. 
And then I said, you want to smoke a joint? And he goes, yeah, we have to go outside though. I have kids, you know, which I thought was cool. And yeah, uh, we went yeah, out yeah. on the balcony and, and we smoked just a little bit. And, and he started talking about the Elvis and when he met Elvis and we just got to a new place. Cause I think oh. he says you could trust me. And uh, ever since then, there was a, a lot of trust. And it's interesting, even now listening back to the, the tapes, there was not one time when he had an attitude or he was weird or anything. He was always polite and really gracious and kind and and mm. always in a good place. So it was really great to work with him. I was so lucky, really. Do you know what? I, I really pick up on that. And like I, on the, the way you're talking about him there, man, like I really do. I feel like um, he was in the zone, like, I'm sorry, in the moment. Do you feel like he was good at being in the moment, like appreciating what he had, bearing in mind the shit he'd been through? Yes. And he was struggling with that because he realized that he had achieved a lot of wealth and fame and celebrity and yet wasn't happy. Mm. And he said, I don't want to be one of these people who's wealthy and famous and is miserable. Mm. And, uh, and he was, he was uh, somewhat neurotic in terms of his own music and that he hated listening to it. And all he could hear were what wasn't good enough, imperfections. And it was really Dana, who was just an angel, his, his, his second wife, mm. uh, who, uh, who kind of got forced him to listen to his own music again because she was listening it, to it. And he said, I'm sorry, we don't play that here. Yeah, uh, you know, I can't hear that. And she goes, well, I'm sorry. I'm I'm a Tom Petty fan. This is what I love to listen to the most. So deal with <laughs> it, dude. And so, so he said, so I listened to it. And you know what? It wasn't so bad. <laughs> That's what he said. Like, yeah, yeah we knew that, Tom. But uh, it showed me how hard he was on himself and that he worried a lot about things. And so as he got older, especially with Dana, he got beyond that. He seemed to become more centered and, and happy in his life. Hmm. Uh, but prior to that, his hat... It, his happiness was in the writing, I find, and performing and recording. But he just loved writing, which which is why I think he was such a great writer and sustained it for so long. That there was nothing he enjoyed as much. It was hard work. It was solitary, lonely sometimes. But mm. he loved it. And then he loved bringing those songs to the Heartbreakers and hearing it. He'd say, after that, I just wanted to go home and write another one so I could do that again. And so yeah. that's really the source of the whole thing. That was That's quite exciting, actually, hearing you talk about about, about the... Um about the raw excitement but especially with the elvis thing he started on because um i'm i'm writing a script at the moment about tom petty's life right it's a biography just for the shits man just for the shits fine i don't care whatever but the the part that i think is so important here two parts i suppose early on would be the elvis and uh, the ed sullivan show and those are the parts I've really enjoyed writing the most because I can really see how cinematic it is. And I think he had a really good cinematic vision for like songs and uh, that importance, you know, to like to, to bring out the story. The people want to want a story. They want vision. They want that palpable sense of being in a song. Mm. He's so, so good at that, you know. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But um, it was cool that you touched on early on, you know, about the importance of Dana in, in, in his life, you know, because um, and it's really sweet, especially in the opening, the um, into, what's the introduction, whatever, you know, the new part, the, the new part you've put in um, and how intense, how emotional and raw that is, um, bearing in mind what's happened to her uh, since what's happened to all, all of the family since mm. um, you, you were really welcomed in, right? amazing i was i was lucky and uh dana was a wonderful person she's a trusting person and i earned her trust too there are a couple times tom was troubled by uh what he said in an interview especially there's one where uh, howie uh, epstein died and he 
we spent a long time talking about it and it was very dark. And she said, there was one time he comes out after you left and he was miserable. And he thought, I just said such bad things about Howie. I feel bad. I didn't say anything yeah. good. And Dana said, why don't you just call Paul and tell him like uh, that, that he had to, you know, be told that he, he's Tom Petty. He could have told him, we're going to do that over. But being Tom, he felt, well, Paul's already done this. So he called me, would you mind terribly maybe doing that over? And, and we did. Yeah. And, uh, and Dana wrote it in there when I'd never heard it from her side, but she goes, I don't know what you said, but it worked. And thank you for that. <laughs> it made me feel good, but uh, it just showed how much he cared because he realized this is a book for the ages and I didn't get that chapter right. And I appreciated yeah. that. I mean, I thought that that's a sign of a real pro and a guy with a good heart. And it showed me how much he cared about everybody, everybody in the band, everybody that he worked with. There was a great loyalty and love there. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 I wanted to talk a bit about Howie, actually, because that, I think, for me, is a, an episode, a chapter that really, really comes out um, really strongly. Because, man, I, what I really, what I, when you said, you know, later on in the book, how, what, what you just said there, like, you know, Tom wanted to get it right. And the, it's brilliant that you did that, because there's a great balance in that in that chapter about Howie, Howie Epstein being the bass player in the band for it. I'm wobbling on like people know who Howie might be, but Howie yeah. was a, you know, the bass player. Blah, blah, blah. And he was oh, a bass player that, that Tom, excuse me for interrupting, stole no, from no, Bill Shannon's it. band. And Tom said, the reason I, cause, cause Ron Blair, the, the original bass player left to start a bikini store on Ventura Boulevard in Hollywood, <laughs> and watch women try on bikinis. And he was just done, you know, touring. But he heard Howie, and he was a good bass player, but it was a singing. He said, in the Heartbreakers, you got to sing those harmonies perfect every time. And Howie was great at that. So that's what really drew him. He said that many times. Yeah, and but the, trage the tragedy behind that, can you... I mean, it's a long time ago now, So, but for me, I know I've only just read it, so it feels like it's just yesterday, which it... does for me too, yeah. Which it was. Um, <laughs> Can you remember anything lasting from that, from the, from that Howie chapter, from that, those interviews? Well, I remember it all. Also, I, you know, I have the, you know, the privilege of getting to read the stuff over if my memories start to falter. But I, I remember, well, he was so emotional. I mean, it's obvious that Tom was a very expressive person. He could have 50,000 people and, and reach them with a the song. So to be sitting there, just the two of us in his little home studio, when he would tell a story, I would feel his emotions so, so yeah. palpably when he was very happy. Is that your cat barking out here? No. <laughs> that's our little dog. Sorry. So that's Rosie. God. It's Rosie, so, that's nice. Limehouse podcast uh, regular. Sorry. Sorry, Paul. No, no problem at all. I like animals. Uh, well, not all animals. But uh, <laughs> so when Tom was happy, I really felt that happiness. And when he was sad, it was so sad. And nothing was sadder than that the, the first how we talked. It was just this darkness. Mm. And he started to speak very slowly. And it was, it was really tough to hear it. And you know, Howie uh, Epstein was a great bass player and he got hooked up on uh, heroin and got really messed up. He was such mm. a sweet guy. All he cared about was music. He never did interviews. He didn't want to be a star. He wanted to be a musician and he was. He was a great musician. He also yeah. was a good producer. He produced one of John Prine's albums and got a got a Grammy. So when he started going down, he started, you know, messing up. You got to be professional. This was the real deal and missing yeah. uh, photo sessions. And so Tom many times said, you got to get help and really tried to help him. And it came to the point where Tom had to fire him. Like, you know, we can't go on like this. Mm. And he died soon after that. So Tom being Tom took it like that was his fault. He could, I don't, you know, I don't think, I understand why he did that. 
but it really hurt Tom. It was, it was probably the hardest thing, one of the hardest things he, he went through. He took it so, so deeply. It just showed me how much he cared about people and how much he loved them. And also how he was a sweet guy. And he kept saying he would clean up, but he, he didn't. He was defeated already by the thing. And mm. That was tough. And it was, it was Dana that told Tom. And, uh, and uh, it, was, it was really tough. And it was interesting. Tom said, then I saw, you know, us on Saturday Night Live a recording. And there was Howie in 3D. And it was so, you know, hard just to see him. And that's what we go through all the time, you know, whether it's Tom or John Lennon or all these people we've lost. Uh, yeah. It's interesting to hear him reflecting it. No, no, of course. I mean, it's just the enabling thing, I think, that with, with, with how he's addicted so heavily to heroin that it just sort of, how do you, how do you cut that? How do you cut someone off and, and put them on the wrong, the right path? You know, it's, it just seemed to me like that guy was just beyond saving, you know, and it's so hard to say that. I mean, I guess that's where Tom would have struggled talking about Howie because it, it is without, you've got to sound compassionate and understanding, but also um, respectful of why the decisions you took. Because right. you, you can't just enable people. You can't, like if you've learned anything in life. Yeah, I don't think Tom felt he was enabling him, but he wasn't. I'm not sure exactly how he looked at it, but uh, he felt that by firing him, that that really uh, gave, you know, gave, uh, took all hope away from from him. Also, I just read it recently that that I didn't realize but how his dog Dingo had died the day before he died. I never quite got that before, but clearly that was really, really hard for him. That's how he's tried that. I know, man, when, do you know what? Another cinematic moment when you said, when you're writing about this in the book, it's like, I can see, you know, there are so many little vignettes in this book, in, in Tom's life, that you draw out so wonderfully. Man, that speaks to the chemistry you guys must have had. But particularly when Howie goes off on his own to his house in Mexico, New Mexico, whatever it is, and, and he's just like, fuck, man, his dog dies and it's just like him. There's just like, you could write a, just a, a film based on that little moment. You know, it's just so... Oh, but do you know why it sticks out? It's because there's so much light in the store. I know that, I know fighting, M, you know, MC, uh, MCA, and I know fighting the, the uh, you know, the record company to to, to keep the record at, at, you know, whatever price it was, like $7 and not raise it by a dollar. I know those are, are pains and real struggles, but p losing some to heroin is a completely different ball game, you know? And that's probably why that particular chapter stuck out so much. Yes, I think it was probably the hardest chapter. I mean, we didn't talk about his divorce from Jane, but I know that was really hard for him to leave his children when they were still kids. That was probably the other hardest part. And we spoke about it a bit. And I saw him actually during that period, and he wasn't the happy Tom I knew. So that was hard, but we didn't talk about it as much. But the, the Howie part, that was dark and that was sad. Mm. So and um, I felt it very deeply. I mean, it's not like Tom was an anti-drug guy by any means. I said, so, you, so you'd never done heroin? <laughs> he goes, no, I, I did try it. And I said, so you didn't like it? He goes, no, I liked it too much. I realized this is dangerous. I mean, it was at the beginning. And uh, so he realized that. But Because then later in the Warren Zane biography, we figure out that he did it. He was actually quite into it at some point, which is what was that like to you, that revelation to figure, to see, to hear that? Well... I don't know if that's a, a reliable source, number one. And and I know that yeah. uh, that author used stuff that Tom didn't want in the book, so I'd, I'd rather not. Oh, really? It. I didn't know that. Oh, for sure, really. Oh, that's interesting. Controversial. 
Okay, that's quite fun because I did enjoy that. But that that Zane is very it, it's very dark in t- times. You know, it's um, I don't know why, but I experienced anxiety when I was reading that book. I mean, not pro- not like profound anxiety, but definitely moments of like shit. You know, like this is some especially when he's talking about you know his mar- you know his first marriage. Oh boy, you know. Um, being married so young and and being on the road and recording and keeping a band together i'm like wow that guy's he's glue he's like rock and roll glue i don't know how the hell he's like i don't know how you do that but Mm. what was your like in terms of because i suppose if i'm going to see like i don't know if i get an interview with uh tom petty i don't know whoever like um I'm trying to think of artists that I really love. It's really, it's really hard because all I've got in my still head. alive, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, Robert Plant, frick it, Robert Plant. I get into with him. I'm like, right, these are the blah blah blah. These are the things I have to talk about. But this is the thing I really want to talk about. What were the things that you were really looking forward to the most when you when you talked with Tom? Well, it's the it's the thing I, I look forward to with with a lot of great songwriters. Like, how did you do this? I mean, to me, that's really what it comes down to because it's not easy to write a great song to write no. one song that the whole world is impacted by is huge it's yeah. rare that someone comes along with john lennon or a tom petty that writes so many i mean that's it's miraculous and uh and i was happy too that it came down to diligence a love of songwriting a love of craft studying i mean really learning songs he was like a sponge and so it was a good lesson for 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 me and all songwriters that it wasn't random that he was that good. He had, he had certainly a huge amount of talent and a certain knack for songwriting. And since mm. he was young, he had an ability to just memorize things. Since he was five, he could memorize nursery rhymes immediately. Dylan yeah. could do this as well. So he could absorb all music and songs and he really took it all in. But he was always learning and always trying new things. And I appreciated that. And also the amount of time he said, you know, sometimes it would take forever. I'd have to sit there six, seven hours before I got the thing, you know? And some yeah. songwriters just don't want to do those six or seven hours. It was like the first couple hours were great, but enough already, you know? And, uh, so that was my main thought. And uh, I was also very curious, like, because uh, he had left the Heartbreakers and done the solo thing, how he was able to unify it all. It's unusual that an artist can do that. Springsteen's pulled that off where you can leave your band and come back and do solo stuff. And, and in fact, it wasn't easy. You know, uh, uh, the, the band had a hard time anytime he would do anything without them. But right. he ended with them. I mean, his last show ever, I mean, his last work ever was his 40th anniversary tour with them. And all those solo songs that he did without them, uh, you know, Free Fallen, he did with the band ultimately. And they, right. their song. So it was a beautiful, uh, you know, uh, full circle. And he always was very careful to, with good reason to in, to involve everyone and not to feel well. You guys are out of it now. I'm done with you guys. The dream is over for you guys. You know, he never yeah. did. And, and did you, it was very unusual being a really huge star, a great celebrity, but a friend. You know, a real compassionate person. Did you feel satisfied then? Because this is the thing, right? You you go you go and meet one of your heroes. I don't know. You've done it. You've done it many years before and what have you. Of course, uh, I'd done it when I was doing some music journalism back here, I don't know, early 2000s, or what have you. I'd meet a lot of really cool, like, up-and-coming bands that were, like, doing really well on the NME. And I'd be like, oh, great, I'm going to go see the Future Heads tonight. I'm going to go and talk to the guys afterwards. Um, but there was always this thing afterwards, and I get it with some of the interviews I, I, when I started this podcast. Um, I just get this feeling of just like, oh, I didn't, 
I didn't get the feeling I wanted or from from them or not like anything against the person I'm interviewing. Just like I didn't get that. I don't know what it is, man. It's like this unspoken thing that I was hoping to get. And I don't even know what the fuck that means or what it was. Like I was just like, I've just had a really good chat with this person, but it's left me feeling good. But and I'll leave sometimes even for you just a bit depressed, just a bit like, ugh. Hmm. I don't know why that is. Do you know, I think it's maybe like a, an adrenaline thing, a come down off an interview. Did you ever get like, after you had like an afternoon or an evening with Tom and or whatever artist, doesn't necessarily be Tom, where you're just like, the high is so profound when you're in the interview and then afterwards you start to come down and you're just like, oh, what is that feeling? Like, <laughs> what? Is it, yes. was that, does that mean the interview's bad? What do you think that comes from? Well, especially with Tom, when I was working on the book, I would go there almost every Saturday to his beautiful place in Malibu with his beautiful wife and what, his, <laughs> you know, his music. And I was living in North Hollywood with my wife and my son was, I think, four then. And uh, it was tough for me to go back to my life because my life wasn't uh, like Tom's life, you know, as he wrote, you know, it was good to be king, you know, I wasn't the king. So yeah. I, I was in such a good mood when I was with him. And then when we get near the end, it's like, oh, I got to go back to the world. Don't I? <laughs> <laughs> and that could be tough, though. You know, I, I have a very happy life. And but uh, it, it was hard, but I didn't feel bad in terms of our conversations, especially his. There were mm. times when I, I wasn't able to get a, the connection. You know, you want an intimate connection. Mm. And sometimes it's really hard to get the person just to calm down and focus on you and understand you're on their side. So uh, I, it didn't always happen, but I go out of my way to establish that I'm not just your usual, like, you know, journalist that's here to, you know, get you. I'm a yeah, fellow yeah. musician and I just have reverence for you. So I would not come out and say that, but I'd say something like, you know, that, that song's in B minor and the way it goes to D, suddenly they'd go, oh, because <laughs> musicians <laughs> talk to fellow musicians differently and that would help. I, I always yeah. remember, it was, I was talking to Daryl Hall of Hall & Oates and uh, oh, he, I was working out to Hall and Oates earlier. <laughs> there? Do, you, do, you, do you like Hall and Oates? I fucking love Hall and Oates. It's oh, crazy not to like Hall and Oates, man. Oh my God. I agree. And Daryl Hall, I mean, God, the guy's amazing. And uh, he was doing what I call chain smoking interviews. It was in a LA uh, hotel doing one every like half hour, you know, where they just do one and they start the next one before the first guy left. And oh, God. so I come in and he's wearing dark glasses and smoking cigarettes and just seemed in a terrible mood. And I had to wait like quite a while. Finally, I got my chance and I asked some question and he paused for a moment. He, he goes, oh, man, he takes off his dark glasses. He goes, hey, I'm sorry, dude. I just thought you'd be an asshole like everyone else. <laughs> but I could see, you know, what, what I'm talking about. And that yeah. was great. That didn't always happen, but but generally it did. And a lot of the people I talked to, like Paul Simon or Bob Dylan or people I've just obsessed over my entire life, you know, learning. <laughs> and that appealed to them. I mean, it's, to, to, I don't know if it appealed to Dylan. It's hard to say what appeals to him, but they liked that I came in with a lot of knowledge. And I think a lot of uh, it's it's common. I don't think you would do this, but the music journalists go in uh, without knowledge, maybe not even hearing the music or being very, very familiar with, with important things in their career. And that mm. comes off as just like uh, insulting to the guys. Like, I've done a lot, you know, the people like, like my music, you should, you should know yeah. it. And also, I mean, I always start with flattery. I mean, that always helps. I love the new album. No matter who they are, they want to hear that, especially if, mm. you know, uh, when I heard of Wildflowers, it was in advance and hadn't come out yet. Even Tom Petty's thinking, why? Well, I wonder if people will like this. They did. Yeah. But that, yeah. that helps. So uh, 
I learned a time. several techniques for making it better, but it, sometimes it just didn't work. Man, I reckon going in with sweets is a fucking good one. Or candy. A candy, as you Americans say. <laughs> I reckon just going in with like a massive fucking chocolate bar or something going, hey, dude, there you go. Uh, and, you know, cracking on with the interview. Um, or a beer. Bad. Beer would work with me. Like, you know, flip reversal. Yeah, there are some people I drank with. Dave Stewart, of Eurythmics, it had to be martinis, and to his oh specifications. <laughs> I'm not a big drinker. I get just smashed. <laughs> well, I'm drinking whiskey at the moment, bourbon. But, um, but that's well, fine. Because there. I'm, I'm drinking coffee here. There you go, dude. You know, LA time, UK time. <laughs> um, God, I wish we had... And, you know, i got to say, I've heard many times that the people think UK interviewers are much tougher. I've interviewed artists, young UK artists, and they go, wow, you were very nice. Why did someone pay you? And they're so used to journalists being really tough on them, I find. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Oh, geez. It's because I'm a gardener. I'm not even a professional. I'm just a freak with a microphone. Um, but you do talk- those big gardens like George Harrison had, those big, beautiful like English gardens? Is that what you do? No, no, I, I used to. Actually, you know, I used to work for Ringo. Uh, I've, I think my listeners will get tired of me saying this. Every time I talk to someone that's vaguely into Tom Petty, um, his name comes up. Uh, I used to. Do, I was a groundsman there, and I used to talk to Ringo loads. He was a, just such a sweet guy, and yes. man, he he blew my tits off. But I had an opportunity to ask him about um, Tom a lot, actually, because he, you know, he's had interactions with him loads, and I was just like, oh, yeah. talk to me, talk to me about Tom. And really? Like, well, you, you don't want to know about Paul or John? Well, this is interesting. Oh, I like Tom a lot. Yeah. Well, anyway. You do the liver puddly and well. <laughs> And also, there's nothing wrong with, if you know met a beetle, nothing wrong with mentioning that a lot. He was a beetle, after all. I mean, come on. Right. Yeah, exactly, man. I just wanted to touch his face. I would have, I would have probably paid like maybe 10 quid just to lick his knee. Anyway, <laughs> um, let's talk about the, the, the three songs that you've highlighted. Well, six, but like three to start with. Um, it'd be really cool to like go into why, why you love them, why they mean something to you and like, you know, the songwriting aspects and stuff. And the first one you've got down here is Rhino Skin. Um, I just want to say to the, to anybody listening, um, maybe pause and, and give these three songs a listen. Rhino mm-hmm. Skin, Crawling Back to You and Insider. So mm-hmm. that's Rhino Skin, Crawling, Crawling Back to You and Insider. And then come back and you'll have a really better understanding of where we're coming from. Um, it's almost like that point I want to say and welcome back after listening to those songs but I'm, I'm just not going to bother um, anyway yeah so Rhino Skin man like where what album's it off uh, when did you first hear it like why does it get you that was on the Echo album it's a uh, wonderful album you know it's considered his saddest album I interviewed him at the time and he was in a really great mood it was a sad time and there were sad songs but he was happy making it in retrospect he started talking about it again like it was very sad and difficult yeah uh, and I chose Rhino Skin because I asked you, you want me to talk about the most famous songs or the songs that really, you know, show Tom? And you said, yeah, those ones, uh, yeah. not necessarily the hits. Rhino Skin really uh, shows who Tom was. I mean, in, in all of Tom's songs, it's one reason they're so great is that they're true to him. He wasn't taking on a pose. Even when he's writing in character, it was still about Tom. And often it was very close to exactly who he was. And Rhino skin is about needing to develop a, a thick skin to be in the world. And also, he doesn't say it explicitly, but the music business, you know, he's a very, uh, he had a big heart. And as I was saying about how he felt things deeply. 
And if yeah. people wronged him or if they did, he took that very deeply. Uh, you get very sad, uh, you know, more than I would think you'd think at that, at that level that he would just rise above all that, but he was a, a human and rhino skin was about that. And yet the story of how it uh, was recorded kind of reflects the, uh, the subject of the song, uh, mm-hmm. which is, uh, he was recording it uh, with the band and uh, Rick Rubin was producing it, who also produced wildflowers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Everyone loved uh, rhino skin. It starts, you know, you got to have rhino skin if you want to, you know, begin to walk through this world. Yeah. Uh, and then you got to have elephant balls if you don't want to crawl on your knees Dude. through this world. And uh, he, cool. Yeah. To me, that was like, wow, that's like a line some guy would see in a bar. You know, you got to have elephant balls, you know, and I love you know, that. Yeah. And the tempo of that song, like the way it just, is it like, a, it's kind of like a, mid-tempo it's so it cool it's minor just, key yeah and uh but he said so uh they played it and it was great but the rick rubin came up after you know they they tried it in the studio and he said you know i love songs love rhino skin but you know the elephant balls tom maybe you take the balls out and Tom said, really and then he said one by one everyone in the band came up to him and said yeah yeah love the song take the balls out the time no one wants <laughs> elephant balls and being t- you know, tom could just say no you're wrong but he, he said, you know, everyone said it, so I, I thought I should try something else. And he said, I couldn't come up with anything that felt, felt you know, right. that, that fit better. And that was what I wanted to say. But all of them were against it. And it just showed me that even at that level, uh, he was dealing with that. And he really took in what people said. Uh, yeah. And it meant a lot to him. And it's funny with that song of all songs, which is about you got to, you know, you got to stand up for yourself. You got to be strong. Uh but it's also about uh, love too, you know, that in love he got really hurt, you know? And uh, mm-hmm. so uh, it's just one of those perfect songs, melodically and lyrically. There's not a wasted word in that song and it's, it's beautiful. And it just yeah. reflects all of his songwriting in that uh, he had what he called his modular method of writing songs that every part of the song has to be equally strong. The mm-hmm. intro, the riff, the chorus, the bridge, you can't have a weak bridge and, mm-hmm. uh, and so there were certain songs of his he called his B songs that weren't going to get on the album unless he improved them and he'd work on them. Uh, and if they never got there, they would never get included. And, and Rhino Skin, I think, is a great example of that, that melodically, every part of it is just so beautifully done and yet short. You know, he didn't like to write epics like Dylan. He 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 grew up on, you know, songs that were under three minutes. That He's like, yeah. do it all and you're out of there before three minutes. That's, that's rock and roll. That's what he was going after, that economy of language and... Uh, so I think Rhino Skin is just a, a perfect example of that. It's visceral, it's funny, it's got everything. It did, you know what? That is so cool. Actually, I haven't thought about that song uh, in that way until you mentioned that whole bar thing. Because it mm-hmm. it's like a bar song, right? It's, like a, it's got moments of that. And it's really cool. You can hear it in, the, in a bar whilst you're drinking your whiskey, chatting with a mate. I can, mm-hmm. I can definitely feel that. That's so cool. Um, and cr- crawling back to you, man, like... Ooh, I keep crawling back to you. I thought, oh my god! Oh my god! Talk, talk to me about that song, the whys and ifs, and why you love it. And, and well, I love that you just do that. You brought the music too, and that's so much a part of it. We're so yeah. used to you know so people talk about lyrics so much, but it's the music too. None of these songs would anyone would care if they didn't have great melodies. He just had a great genius for writing wonderful, visceral, passionate music. Uh, crawling back to you from Wildflower. So it was on that album, which I had heard you know, before the first time I interviewed him. And I had it on cassette too at that time. And I'd, I'd, I remember riding my bike, you know, for hours and 
Griffith Park just listening to that, just being so inspired. Like I get to talk about this, and I loved all Wildflowers, but that uh, that song blew me away. It was just it's so powerful. It, it takes place in Los Angeles. It's a very Angelino song, but with some strange, you know, unusual lyrics about you know an Indian shot out the lights. That's such a goddamn lyric. That yes, is such a line. That I, that's a line where I just go fuck you, Petty. You're too good now. Fuck <laughs> off. You know, it's like oh god, it's such great imagery. It's just oh. I love that. I should have said fuck you, Petty. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's too good. You would have laughed. You like that stuff. That that's a that's a perfect response. But I felt that too. I mean, as you were saying that that first section, there's no words. Oh, you know, it's just music. It's just emotion. I keep crawling back to you. That's the whole chorus. Uh, it's so simple, and yet the words, he often did this, uh, I call it gestalt songwriting, when you <laughs> just give enough that the mind fills in the rest. You know, Lennon was yeah. genius at that, you know, like did he, in Norwegian Wood, did, they, did he burn the apartment? You know, you know, he, he doesn't yeah. give you all those, and, and so you go into the song. And Tom just gives you enough, but uh, at the end, uh, it gets to the last verse, I'm so tired of being tired, sure as night will follow day. Most things I worry about never happen anyway. Yeah. And uh, and I certainly relate to that. And I mentioned that line and he goes, yeah, you know, that that's probably as true as I can get about myself. That was him. And I love that. I mean, he wasn't just trying to be clever in songs. He was really, you know, expressing the truth of who he was. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a real worrier. And I think that just shows so perfectly, like most things I worry about, they, they never even happen. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just such a simple statement and yet so beautifully when it's woven in with perfect rhyme and melody and the heartbreakers and the rhythm, mm. it, it, it's powerful stuff. But, that song wasn't but, a hit, but I think it's one of his most powerful songs. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I don't want to cut you short. I just feel mm. like when I when I first heard that song and there's another, there's another refrain on uh, Damn Torpedoes where it's similar, it's kind of like, don't worry about this shit, it's all going to be fine, kind of, I can't remember what bloody song it is now. But um, and I, sto- I spoke to Steve Ferroni about this, and he's got the tattoo uh, of um, that 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 um, you know most things I most things I worry about never happen anyway on his arm. Does and he? I didn't realize that. That's so cool. Yeah, it's so that. cute. So cute. And the interview showed me, and I showed him I my like Tom him. Petty tattoo as well. We had this little this little what, moment. What is yours? It, I gonna, I wonder. Oh, it's, I, it would involve me taking my shirt off. And Paul, yeah, I just you could describe just, it. You don't have to we undress. Just, we just don't have that relationship yet. Um, but no, it's it's that tattoo there. I'm just. Oh. Oh, beautiful, Paul, beautiful. Paul, that the uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers logo. You know, Ferroni for uh, the new drummer, he's he's pretty good, you know, yeah, for the new guy. Shit. They still think of him as the new guy, you know, after like <laughs> yeah, 20 right, years. 20, 25 years. <laughs> but it's just touching back on that real quick, um, the notion that ro- when you're rock and roll heroes, your icons go like, hey, look, man, I've got the same worries as you. It's okay. It's It, it sounds really stupid to say it. Um, and rather obvious, but it really helped me, man. When I was going, like, I've been through shit in my life, anxiety, worrying about stuff that is just obscenely stupid to worry about, but you're doing it anyway, and you're OCDing the shit out of yourself, and you're just going over and over and over crap. Mm-hmm. And then, and then someone just goes, look, dude, that shit never happened, did it? Oh, right, yeah. Thanks, Tom. It just makes, it just makes life a bit easier. But, um... It does, yeah. Insider, man. That's a, mm. that's a, that's whoa. Let's have the download on that one. What do you, what do you so take? What's your take? You're on familiar that with all these, I'm assuming. You know, all oh, these dude, things. inside out, back to front. Yeah, yeah, an insider. That's a special one, isn't it? Yeah, oh, uh, man. What happened was, uh, 
he got to know Stevie Nicks. Stevie Nicks loved the Heartbreakers, started hanging out. At first, she kind of threw them off because he said, you know, we were a boys club. It was all boys. And she shows up with nine other you know, girls. She always had an entourage <laughs> and they disappear into the bathroom like for 40 minutes, you know, and then come out. And uh, so at first, I'm not so sure. But when she started singing with them, I mean, there was, it's undeniable. It's the great thing about real music. It's not fake. You can't fake that. It's either great or it isn't. And the, he has great respect for, for Stevie and the way she could sing. Mm. So he was working with Jimmy Yovine, the uh, producer. And Jimmy uh, started working with Stevie. And so they, they, asked, they asked Tom for a duet. They thought it'd be nice to have a duet. And so he went away and he wrote Insider, uh, which is such a powerful, uh, again, a slower song, but so visceral and uh, really uh, about getting through pain. You know, I've been through the briar. Uh, I've crawled through the briar. And uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a heartbreak song, you know, and it, it's really, uh, again, it doesn't spell out everything, but it gives you enough to know this guy's hurt, but he's, he's bringing a lot to it. And so, so Tom wrote that and he comes back and Jimmy uh, said, you know, when we asked you for a song, we didn't know you'd write this. Some fun little pop record would be good. Yeah. And they just were blown away. So uh, Tom cut it just voice and guitar and then Stevie overdubbed her, her harmony. And Tom realized, boy, this sounds so good. I don't want to give this away. And he felt bad because that was the whole idea of it. He said to Stevie, uh, do you mind? I, I want to keep this for my record. And she's a songwriter. She did understand. She said, as long as you give me something else and stop dragging my heart around with something he already recorded. And they just took it and turned it into a duet. I always thought he wrote it specifically for that. But Insider yeah. was one he wrote uh, for that. And it's amazing in that in that place and for that for that reason that he would write a song that deep. And, you know, later after that, his house was burnt down while he was there with his, with his family. Uh, and they almost died. He saved his family by actually having him jump in the swimming pool. And I used to think Insider was written after that because it's, it was about being, you know, getting through the fire and being a survivor, but yeah. in fact it wasn't. So it was, it's a prophetic song too. And that he was talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that is like for me, the first, um, ballad that I ever heard of Tom's ever like um, sorry I mean yes I'd heard um, stuff off Full Moon Fever well Free Falling but really like I for me personally that it's quite a bold move isn't it because it is it is a proper ballad right I mean it's and, and the rest of the album doesn't is nothing like that really um, so it's quite a statement and also it's it is People wouldn't say this. Like it is, I, for me, it's quite ballsy. You know, getting getting Stevie in. What's that going to do to the fan base? Is this just like, oh, look, he's now so famous. Look, look what he's doing, man. Not like a sellout or anything, but you know, it it and it it. But it just worked. So it's kind of like it just. That's what I love about Tom Petty. He's like so much as he goes. Well, we can do this now. I don't care about what anyone says. And then he goes, look, I told you it would work. You know, and the, and his music does all the talking for him. You know. Yes. I think he really did care what people thought. He wanted it. He really cared about his fans, but he always did it with authenticity. I mean, he knew that sounded great. That was a great song. You can't get a better harmony singer than that. And so I don't think he thought in those terms as much, but if he did, he didn't, he didn't tell me that. But I think uh, he always felt, well, let them listen to it and see what they think. And uh, his mm. fans love that song. And you're right. It's a ballad. And generally ballads never get released as, as singles. It's unusual unless it's Let It Be or Bridge Over Troubled Water to become a hit. And uh, you know, he wrote Southern Accents, the, the title song. That was a, a beautiful ballad, but not a single. 
Uh, also, Room at the Top is a ballad. So uh, he always knew that if you write a ballad, it's not going to be a, a single. Yet that's part of his, his personality that that would come come across. But he was so authentic. He was never uh, contriving songs like, yeah, this is this is the kind of song I should write for Stevie. He didn't think in those calculated ways. He hated that kind of thinking, uh, like demographics, even though he right. he crossed over all demographics. He hated that idea of like, let's split up the audience to sell to them. He, well, you he, mean like how the music industry has become, right? Absolutely, yeah. Like, uh, no, no, let's make it all rock. You know, that won't fit. You know, don't put a ballad on there. You know, it won't appeal to these guys. And, and his his philosophy was always uh, inclusive, to include mm -hmm. everyone. There's no reason to keep Stevie Nicks out, even though she is a girl. And it was in Fleetwood Mac, like that somehow wasn't great. But uh, you know, Lindsey Buckingham sang with him, too, on Walls. But well, dude, you, yeah, we were gonna, I was going to touch on that. Because, yeah. like... I, 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 you've also got um, three other songs um, as kind of like if we got stuck. Well, not stuck, <laughs> but if we plowed through the, the first three quick enough. And the, ne the next three, I, I, <laughs> I love them so much. It was like, oh, damn. It wasn't like a game we were playing, like I'm going to out, out cool you or outdo you on the, <laughs> the song selection. Your choices were cool. I, I wasn't... Of course they were, dear boy. Of course they were. <laughs> um, so the next, the next three, I'm just going to get on with them. We've, we've probably got like another ten, fifteen minutes, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Um, I've got um, you wreck me. So again, mm. if you're listening to this, go pause this and go listen to these three. Okay, you wreck me. Southern accents and two gunslingers. Mm. I mean. Oh God! You wreck me. I used to be in a Tom Petty cover band. I was, I was Tom. I was a Tom. Oh. Yeah. Um, sadly, we only played one gig. We practiced so hard. It was a great gig, but uh, the guitarist left, and we couldn't find a replacement. Um, but we opened with "You Wreck Me." Wow! Talk me through that, man. Like, talk talk me through your. How does that make you feel on a gut level? That that song. Well, it's 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 real rock and roll, but brand new. It's like. Brand new and, and old fashioned at the same time, very up tempo. And you wreck me, such a compelling title. And it's just so great. You think he must have written that like in a half hour, it just came out, you know? And yeah, that's a song he wrote uh, to a Mike Campbell uh, track. You know, often Mike would give him a cassette tape back in the day with 20 tracks. And Tom would find one and work on it. And you wreck me was that. And it really showed, you know, his diligence and that he told me, uh, as I mentioned, that for almost a year he had it, but as you rock me, and you know that just wasn't right. Yeah. And as one day he came up with you wreck me, it's just one word difference, and it shows because songs are such a, a short form. One word like that is is monumental, especially in the title. It changed everything, and suddenly he had a way into the song. But that really struck me, boy, because you hear that, you think that's just pure rock and roll. He wrote that, you know, in one day. <laughs> he has got year. that feeling. It showed how serious he is, and yet he was always so serious. But he never wanted to show the labor that it took that long. If it sounded like it took a year, that would that would be the wrong thing yeah. entirely. But also, it's it's cool that you played it, so you understand that, you know, someone gave you those chords. You'd probably put the melody right on the chords, but he really sings in between the chords, and yet with yeah. a great melody, it's it's ingenious. It's not it's not a normal thing. We hear it now. It's like, well, that's how it goes. But it's it's just ingenious. I mean, Mike's chords are, are so brilliant. I mean, he's just. It's a fast progression of chords going by, as you know, and uh, and Tom just folded the melody in in such a a, a brilliant way. It, well, 
there's a key change in the middle of it, right? And then it goes back to the original key. It's mental. It's like down, 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 down. And then it goes back to, and that's so cool to be able to pull that off, man. It really, in the middle of, a, like you said, like a seemingly straightforward, oh, you must have written that in 10 minutes uh, song. Like, it's not the case at all. Like, it's 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 wonderful. I mean, yeah, I'm, well, I'm, Mike was great too with the stuff he would give Tom. I mean, uh, yeah. Like I said, Tom would get to maybe one in 20. So uh, Don Henley or, you know, would write uh, Boys of Summer to one of them. Yeah. You know, the, those other tracks went other Boy, places I, I wish that had gone to tom i wish tom had picked up on that one that's the only regret i have i think i would oh geez because i mean but then again maybe it wouldn't have been anywhere near as iconic if i don't know whatever fuck it that's another whole conversation <laughs> i just love boys of summer so much my god what a song but um southern know. southern accents right so here's a <laughs> between just you and me here paul i played southern accents just the song to my wife laura when we were on holiday on holiday a, a couple of months few few months ago and she didn't like it and i was yeah. like is there something wrong with you if i married the wrong person southern fucking accents this is just the most beautiful beautiful song man what is it and this is why we have divorce you know right, good fucking reasons. right <laughs> man. i'm well ahead of you there buddy <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was a lovely lady. Why are you divorcing your wife? Well, I'll tell you, Your Honor. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I'll play this song, and I'm telling you that that judge's face is just going to go. I get it, man. Don't worry about it. Here's you didn't like that. What's your answer? Yeah, right. You know. Well, it's it's interesting because you are British, and it's such an American rooted song. I don't know if it would resound in the same way, but clearly it does with you. Oh, it's, a, it's stunning. It's stunning. It is. There's it? a southern exit. I mean, Jesus Christ. Anyway, what does it do for you, Paul, man? What, what's the like same that? thing, just like when you sing it, it's got that aching, visceral quality in the melody. Mm. And then his beautiful way of writing about the South, which was where he was from, but he really had to leave the South to really become who he wanted to become. And there's a lot of sadness and sorrow and pain in the South that, mm. uh, that he had to escape from, and it's all there. But there was also his mother, who was a heroic figure in his life and all, was always there. And uh, it's a song he wrote on piano, and it really has that quality. It's, it's slow, and it's, it's, it's haunting with a beautiful melody. And it's about uh, both being from the South, but how the South is perceived. Uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. got a Southern accent where I come from. You know, the Yankees just call it dumb, you know, to talk like that. And uh, so he was reflecting the division that, remarkably still goes on to this day maybe more than ever thanks to our almost gone president i mean he's a psychotic man yeah let's yeah. let's start a new civil war you know and yeah. but uh but but tom would you know he had very strong feelings about the south and his roots and also where he came to he came to los angeles and always wanted to say you know we are a los angeles man we did everything here but often was writing about the south uh so he was writing that and he uh it was it was coming through him and uh, the bridge he said he wrote it like that. He said, generally, it takes me a long time to get the bridge right. The bridge is the one section of the song that doesn't repeat and is different musically. He said, my fingers just went to those chords. And it's a beautiful chromatic oh. bridge. And the bridge is this vision of a, a dream vision of his mother, you know, kneeling, saying a prayer for me. Uh, and it's just oh my so beautiful. God. There she is, that vision of her, that she was always his his champion and giving him uh, giving him hope and being there for him. And uh, so it's, it's so much from his heart, you know, it's so close to him, but just so beautiful too, musically. It's powerful, I, I think, very powerful. 
Yeah, because you know what I I my I I grew up um with uh, three women in my life and my 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 father died sadly when he was 50 and I spent a lot of when I was back when I was 22 so I spent a lot of time before that and and after that just ref, uh, and I've always have reflected on how uh women have driven my my life along and how much I've been there for my mum and that song in particular that that refrain is uh it really cuts cuts deep with me actually because and that's why I'm quite lucky that's what I think you can draw a lot from loss um and when artists really mean it you know and when they're singing they really mean it and and you've got that opportunity to go okay I can take this sack of shit that I've been given and turn it into something slightly better slightly Mm. I don't know it's hard hard to describe but um and I understand yeah, that's one of those songs, you know. Yeah, and we all have mothers, and uh, I lost my mother ten days ago. She died on December first. Oh she, oh, she was old. She was ninety-one. So, uh, yeah. but, you but, did say in the email I was going to ask you, like, how you yeah, been I doing? Didn't, haven't talked about it much, but that comes across when he talks about his mother because we knew she was gone, and she's there praying for him. You know, she's this symbol of hope for him, and that that's so beautiful. And it comes across oh, in the book too, talking about her. And many other songs, he mentions her as well. But also, his dad was not that for him. His dad was a tough guy on him, you know, and really tough for him. So uh, his mother meant so much to him, like like an, like an angel, and that she put up with so much and uh, and persevered. That whole family, man, like the backgrounds, you know, like the Native American background, the prejudice that his grandfather faced, and and what have you, and. There's there's hurt there. There's like a like a linear. You can see that line of hurt for that family. And I yes. suggest anybody just read this book. Read read Paul's book. It's so fucking great. Um, Thank you, man. Appreciate that. But two two. But you're guns. right. I mean, his 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 grandmother uh, was a full blooded Cherokee. Yeah. Uh, on, his, on his father's side, and uh, his, his grandfather Pulp Woodpetty was not. And uh, there was a a murder. They, they were trying to get get out of Georgia. And uh, you know, there was a scuffle, and I think his grandfather killed someone, and that's why they went to Florida. And I'd make the morbid joke, like, without that murder, we might, you know, the, the history of rock and roll would have been different, you know. <laughs> it's true. But I thought that was a fake story, but Tom confirmed that that, that was real. That's why uh, the Petties ended up in Florida. I can completely believe it. I can completely, given the, the American history, I can completely believe that, you know, yes. totally. In fact, it's a wonder to me that we don't hear that more in rock and roll. You know, it really is like the, the, the how people come about, like struggling stuff. Um, yes, that he could be such a great rock and roller and have so many fans and still write about such heavy stuff like that. I mean, southern accents about the you know the division of the South and the North here and that. You know, we genocide of Native Americans and hatred of the Native people of our own land. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have not really resolved any of that at this nope. point. Nope, that's he was the dealing yeah, that's... With it. That's the nature of American politics, British yes. politics. The nature of politics, let's just say. Just brush shit under the carpet and hope it goes away because life moves so quickly. But you, you can't, and, and we're kind of figuring that out. Anyway, um, two gunslingers, man. I'm so glad you put that on there. Integrate wide open. Um, again, the way that song comes up. So if you've listened to this song, guys, you'll know this song. Is it the one that fades up? Or, or am I thinking of another one? Am I thinking too good to be true? I don't know. Uh, I'm probably thinking of another one but there's two gunslingers so this is the ultimate story song man like is Mm -hmm. that why you love this song I like to 
Yeah, that is one reason. I mean, I love story songs. Like, like I said, sometimes he's writing about himself, like uh, Southern accents, but he's writing mm -hmm. a, a bigger story too. And, and other times he's, he's writing a story about a character, but put himself, it's always a story that from his heart that, that means something to Tom. And this is a story about two gunslingers in the old West, another American story. And they realize this isn't a good profession if you really want to sustain a, a life. <laughs> and maybe we don't have to do this. And uh, they just start to, you know, say, I'm, I'm going to take control of my life. And uh, it's a it's a beautiful song about nonviolence, but it's, it's funny and it rocks and it takes place in the Old West. And uh, it's just one of those songs I felt if they released this as a single with an MTV video, like like so many others, it would have become a, a hit. And yet no one ever mentioned it. So it was a song I wanted to mention the first time I interviewed him, uh, which was ostensibly about wildflowers. But songwriters, as I know you know, especially hit songwriters, they love it when you mention one of those songs that wasn't a hit. Like one of their yeah. kids that gets no attention, but he's maybe more brilliant than all the others. He's brilliant, but no one knows it. <laughs> look and at the little guy two, down there. Yeah, so when I mentioned Two Gunslingers, he really lit up. It's like, I'm really glad you mentioned that. That is a good one, isn't it? And he was, I think it was one of the reasons we bonded, that he realized, I'm not just going to talk about free falling. Nothing against that. It's a great song, but yeah. Two Gunslingers, it's an existential song that takes place in the Old West to rock and roll. Who does that that well except Tom Petty? I mean, it, it's just great. Oh, I'm taking control of my life. I'm take, I, oh, my God, when I was 10, my God. Do you know what it's like to be 10 years old hearing the, those songs for the first time and having that? You, you know, when you're a kid, you just take shit in like not like in no other time and you i'm what i love about this album is the first album i ever fell in love with and 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 it's just these pictures that he painted and i could see those you know cowboys and i got the humor i got the humor and i got the you know that the, there's no need for violence man let's <laughs> all hang out you know that kind of sentiment that i think that's why my whole family dug that whole goddamn album it's just <laughs> so underrated i love it i know it was um you know it, it caused a lot of friction in the band i suppose the way it was produced uh getting jeff in but i, I or rather jeff's technique but i still think um oy, what yeah. an album My i agree God. i love hearing that you, you were hearing that at 10 and loving it you know when i was 10 i before tom petty i was listening to the beatles but it was the same kind of thing like wow you know, it's really introducing you to the world and a lot of a lot of stuff. And uh, but that song, yeah, yeah, it's like a lot of his songs. It's got clear imagery, so like you see, you could see it. It's like a little movie too, and that's great songwriting. It's not it doesn't take ten minutes to do it either. It's very quick, mm -hmm. and it's got great music and it's rock and roll. It, it does everything. So, dude, I have to call this to an end soon. But out of these next few songs, out of my list, right, which one? Pick one that you speaks to you the most. And this is ridiculously difficult. So just call me a prick and tell me to go away. Prick. If you want, if you, yeah, yeah. Hey, prick. Fuck off. These songs are too good. Okay, I've got Letting You Go, The Dark of the Sun, Straight Into Darkness, Somewhere Under Heaven, Making Some Noise, Hurt, Walls, and Last DJ. Any of those? Discuss one of those. You can tick. Which one of those tickles your fancy? Well, as I mentioned, I love Wall's Circus with Lindsey Buckingham's, you know, amazing you know, wall of sound uh, harmonies. But I think maybe more significant to mention the last DJ because that's unusual. 
And we're talking about Tom as such a, an artist of the people. I mean, an artist who really cared about his fans much more than most artists. Like we said, he kept his album price down. He didn't want that to go up. Same thing with his uh, concerts. It used to bother him. He told me that, you know, they would always list in Billboard the, the top grossing acts for the summer tours and Rolling Stones or Eagles would be one. But Tom would have sold more tickets often, but they cost yeah. less. So that bothered him, but not to the extent that he would lower his prices. So it mattered to him. Uh, at the same time, he wasn't just trying to be, uh, you know, everyone's friend. He would speak out, you know, he would fight for things. And The Last DJ was a, a whole album about what he, he saw all of society getting kind of destroyed by corporate thinking. But yeah. he used the music business as the main symbol, basically the radio business and, and, and records, that it used to be a, a real thing, and especially radio, that songs would become hits because uh, people would hear them and want to and buy them and, and request them. And so it was a kind of a democratic system and that changed. And he, he, he saw it change when suddenly the marketing guys came in and suddenly the marketing preceded the product. And I said, well, make, make the songs fit this. He's, he knew when that happened, this is going to dilute the power of rock and roll. It won't be pure. Mm. And he fought against that. And the last DJ, he's, he's writing songs against the hand that's been feeding him well for years. <laughs> so you don't do that in this business generally. But, uh, People took that. A lot of people were offended by it. He said, I wasn't just writing about the music uh, business. It was the main metaphor for it. But uh, those are, are tre tremendously engaged songs. He's so invested in those songs. And some of them are very angry. And it really reflects, because he was authentic, like I said. He wasn't going to hide his feelings in songs. And it reflects what he saw in the music business was suddenly because uh, I mean, MTV really launched them in a huge way. <laughs> Uh, but they were real rock and roll. They were real-time rock and roll. But then there were these artists that came along that weren't that. And he said he didn't want to name any names, but he'd be on some festival with a woman pop singer. And uh, she was hugely popular. And he goes, that's great, but don't call her a musician because she's not a musician. Yeah, it takes absolutely. real artistry to do what we're doing. And that's yeah, different. Sorry. And I thought it's so rare that he would castigate someone like that. But it it just showed that purity again that, Rock and roll mattered to him, and he stood up for it to the end, and he didn't want it to get diluted or become meaningless or trivial. Well, you and know what? That, sorry to interrupt, Paul, but no, no, the, what, the, the thing that that song does for me is it, it takes, like, the imagery that I don't know why, but it's always stuck with me is Dazed and Confused, you know, that the, the, the DJ in, in Dazed and Confused and, and um, Matthew McConaughey's character. And I always think when I first heard, actually the first time I heard Last DJ was on The Simpsons because he appeared on the Simpsons with the Elvis Costello and a couple of other guys, I think. And, right. um, and, and the last DJ came on, I was like, and Homer, I think is driving this car and it's just brilliant. It's just brilliant. And, um, but yeah, and I love that idea that Tom just, just, just nails it. You know, there goes the last DJ. It's just beautiful. It's, it's, it's a marvelous. Um, and I, for me, that's like definitely in my top 10 Tom Petty songs, just because, mm. It says everything it needs to say, um, or, or <laughs> that's almost a that's almost a lyric in the song without <laughs> uh, meaning to. Oh, so clever sometimes, um, yeah. And uh, you know, he just he just he says takes the political aspect of music, but puts it in a bundle that is just be wonderful, wonderfully like pop sentiment, but just gets to you and does everything a song needs to. You know, it's yes. so groovy i love that song yeah it, i do too it's powerful and it really reflects 
he was able to reflect something that was really going on in the culture and a real cultural shift, but made, he always made great songs out of them. They weren't just, you know, statements. They were always good songs. And the, mm-hmm. the last DJ was, was that. But yeah. uh, to this day, I don't think it's been received fairly, that song and that whole album. People wow. are, yeah. I mean, I, I hate, sorry, you're going to disagree with me here because everyone does, but I think David Bowie's last album, I Can't Stand It, but like something like Last DJ doesn't get a look in, but I know that's completely ridiculous comparison, but, and that happens a lot in music, but you know, I just love that album so much, but um, I yeah, there you go. But um, before we go, um, I'm, I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to maybe record, not record this bit. I just want to ask you a personal question um, and feel free. Look, we're not, we don't put this in the interview, but I've read a lot of, of stuff not a lot but one rolling stone article about adria and dana falling out um and it just perplexed me i was like what like they've they because this was i don't know if you've heard about it at all and i I think i only did it i think i came across this article by complete accident um when i was on holiday and i was like that's over tom's um estate and stuff like creatively and i guess it was tied up with release of wildflowers and stuff um, and here me being the selfish motherfucker that I am, I was like, well, hang on now. If I write my scripts and I, <laughs> this is how also how mental I am, who am I going to send it or send it to? Am I going to ever get it, get this film made? There's like a break in the family here. Mm. What's that all about? And don't feel, honestly, don't worry about saying you don't want to talk about it. It's fine. No, I don't mind talking about it. Uh, well, needless to say, Adria and Kim, his two daughters had a re- real hard time with his when he died it was unexpected that was really hard and uh you know yeah. they announced his death before he was gone that really was tough on the girls they're not gone yet i i know i know dana really well i don't know mm. the daughters uh but dana is a, a wonderful person and she got mm. what i call the yoko ono uh, uh situation where people blame everything on the wife like yoko broke up right. the beatles and maybe killed john herself and then you know, people were attacking Dana, like she should have saved his life and all sorts of things. She was oh, an, God. A, an absolute angel. I mean, she really, anyone that knows her, as Tom said, she never had a bad thing to say about anyone. She was just, to, to this day, a really positive, sweet, compassionate, supportive person. She yeah. was an angel in his life. She, she, she changed his life. I mean, that song, Angel Dream, you know, like, thank God it happened, you know, now. It's so true, you know, that yeah. uh, it could have been too late. She she saved him in a big way and made his life happy for the last two decades of his life. And uh, and I know people don't trust her. You can trust Dana. She's got mm-hmm. nothing but authentic love for Tom Petty. I couldn't have done the, the new version. I happen to have it here. This is the new version of uh, the book. I love that cover. I do, I too. It's beautiful. It's... I didn't choose that. They did that. But... Uh, I shared the, the copyright with Tom, so to do a new version, I needed Dana's okay, and, yeah. and she gave it her blessing. And as you mentioned, she, she uh, did a little interview for the beginning of the book. Yeah. And, uh, and she wrote me, she goes, I got to tell you, Paul, a few things make me happier than when I read about you writing about our love. Uh, and that made me so happy. But I was reflecting the truth because, you know, as I mentioned, I knew Tom before that, and I knew him when he was going through that sad period. Uh, he was yeah. living at the uh, Chicken Shack. And then I, and he was so sad and just, and then I saw him with Dana and he was so happy. Anytime she would just walk by, his eyes would light up and they were lovebirds and it was authentic love. And uh, 
he talked about, you know, yeah, I went through that period and that was probably the hardest time of my life. But then I met Dana, you know, and it was years before they could be together. Mm. And she was a blessing in his life. She really helped him to become a happy man. And it wasn't easy when you were already at that. Like he came into like a circus, you know, and he was for sure. And and she, she dealt with it beautifully. So uh, you could always trust Dana. I mean, that's, that's the the insight I could share. That's what, that's what messed with my head. I was like, oh no, oh, there's always something, isn't there? Oh God, why yeah. does this have to happen? Obviously, it's not my family. It doesn't affect me. It's just like my, oh, I don't know. I just love the fact You know, that- and they are the daughters of Jane, so I could understand, you know, that's their mother, uh, not Dana, but, mm. you know, they went through a, a real hard, hard time, you know, with, with what happened. And it's tough mm. on everyone. Yeah. Do you know what, though? I would love to talk to Dana for this podcast, but obviously that's, you know, not going to happen, but oh my God, to talk, to talk to that. But how do you even reach out? It's like, I I try to reach out to Adria, right? Um, Via her website, because she's done amazing. I love her music videos and documentaries and stuff. She's done some really great work. And yeah, and it's just, how do you, I think it's like inner circle. It's kind of stuff. I'm so lucky to have spoken to you guys and Steve Ferroni. It's like trying to, reach out to people it can be hard mm-hmm. but um i don't know maybe it's just longevity i've got to be like you know 65 well I can't, I can't that's the other thing i don't i'm that's why i'm pushing to do these things because like people die man you know yes exactly people it's very important die. to do it before they die yeah. i've learned this and you know so many of the interviews i did you know i started this like in 87 i started doing these interviews i knew old timers would die but so many young people died that i interviewed soon after i interviewed them you know Great people, mm. Harry Nilsson, Towns Van Zandt, Laura Nero, Lou Reed. I mean, it's endless. I, I wasn't meaning to write history, but it becomes that. And uh, as you know, it's such a privilege to be with these guys. These are true geniuses of this forum. Yeah, for what sure. they've done is timeless, amazing work. But it's really important to get to them before they, they die. There were a couple I got very close to and, and we lost them. And it was yeah. frustrating forever for me. I mean, yeah, well, you touch on George Harrison in the book and it's... Yeah, it's wide, widely known. I mean, that is just bleak, bleak the way he went. I mean, just mm. horrific. But and I suppose that's what the price, isn't it? That some of those guys paid. We didn't know it would be that kind of price where he was stabbed right. viciously. And as Tom said, uh, he said to me, I don't know if it's put it in the book, but he said that was actually much more severe and worse. The, the attack and what he suffered than they let on. But Oh yeah, we, we thought it was gone. a stab. We thought it was one stab wound in the UK press. It was just a, like what have what have you? But it it sounded psychotic, right? What well, like I stabbed him anyway, viciously. But... You know, Olivia, uh, uh, George's wife, got the guy with a lamp and uh, could have killed yeah. George. And for the yeah. I, I was writing about this yesterday because it was just the uh, the 40th anniversary of Lennon's death uh, for Beatles to get attacked. These people that gave us so much. It, you know, it's still a horror that's so hard to to deal with. And needless yeah. to say, it affected all of them. You know, like Tom was a little scared of fans. And I thought with, with good reason after what happened mm. to Lennon and then George, you know, he had every right. And yet he would go out and meet the fans. But yeah. George was interesting with Tom or anyone I met that knew him. They spoke with so much love. And Tom said, you know, there's this thought that maybe we knew each other in another life. There was such closeness. And George said to him after they first met, you know, I'm not going to let you out of my life now. And he right. spoke about George with so much love. It was really beautiful. Yeah. Dude, we're going to have to f- fucking end it. I hate this shit. Not our lives, by the way. 
or good, good. you know just just this conversation the way i said it there it's well, just so it. annoying when, I want. I wish we were. Oh God! I wish we were in a bar somewhere. This would be. Oh, you know. Yeah, I wish we could go to a bar anywhere. You know, we can't go to bars here. I've just got a bar in my head, my friend. That's what I've learned to do. Close my little eyes, get a little bit tipsy, and just pretend I'm in my favorite dive bar or wherever. Um, but yeah, um, dude, thank you so much for your time. And hey, maybe, we, you. maybe, maybe we do this again sometime. I would love um, to. It's a joy to talk to you, and I love. You started singing the songs. You have so much joy for the songs. That's what it's about. That's, there's joy in these songs. And I love that you, you express that. It's great talking to you. I appreciate it. When I've got my script, right, I'm going to send it to you so you can Good. laugh first. You can laugh your tits off at it. Uh, and two, <laughs> maybe, maybe you'll like some of it. But I, I, I'm writing it from a fan's perspective, knowing that it's never going to get made. But it's just to, do you know what I mean? Just to, just to say I, I gave it a go, you know. As a, yeah. as a movie, right? As a screenplay? Yeah, yeah, screenplay, yeah. So I'm, I'm loving it. It's so much fun doing this shit. Oh, well, I think it, it should get made. Yeah, me too, mate. Yeah, you know, yeah. you got, you, you and me, we'll write it together, Paul, and we'll <laughs> just go to Hollywood and they'll just go, okay then, buddy, sure thing. <laughs> Are you going to talk about his childhood too? Where does it start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, start, it starts with, um, it starts with the, re- I, I love the story of his dad him and his dad fishing and the dad reaching into this um to the water and getting the eye sockets of a crocodile right That's i love right. all that that crazy alligator shit. the alligators yeah. yeah the alligator crocodile. Yeah, i grew up in chicago that never happened where you come up with an alligator <laughs> you know never that was an amazing stories they're in the boat and his father takes his, his two fingers and into the eyes of the alligator which then went yeah. down and tom said just to show me that he could do that you know fucking insane wow. imagine that as an opening sequence like you know like the you know big big white wide shot of the them fishing on the boat and then hey tom yeah and then the elvis thing i mean obviously but anyway i'll send it to you You we can have a laugh together it'll be funny (laughs) it sounds like it could be great yeah yeah but look dude thanks so much for your time thank you william it's a pleasure let's stay in touch and i'm really yeah i'm so sorry for your loss man but um you know, God, I and mean, she had a great innings, as we say in the UK. A great what? I'm sorry. A great innings. It's a innings. cricket cr- innings. Yeah, it's a cricketing phrase. It means like they have that in, in baseball. We have innings. Right, baseball. I was going to say that that translates, right? Yeah. I love that. That's <laughs> yeah. lovely. Nice one, man. Well, look, look after yourself, okay? Thank you. You too. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks, Paul. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.